Welcome to another community conversation. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Paul LeBlanc, the president of Southern New Hampshire University, someone who is well known across the world, someone who has been active in the Educause community. Paul, I remember the series of articles you wrote uh, a few years back for Educause Review. Uh, it was widely read and very influential, by which I mean to me. So I'm excited to have you here to talk about your new book, Students First. So welcome, Paul. Um, John, thank you so much for having me. It's really good to see you. I wish it was in person, of course. We're all dealing, dealing with that. I love the book. I love the title, Students First. Actually, one of the best jobs I ever had was as the director of Students First as a project for a large statewide system. And I think we're seeing increasingly, uh, with COVID as a catalyst, students increasingly being put in the center of more and more conversations. Your book starts off with the story of a student, which is one of my favorite things about the book, is students are literally in the book, uh, Mm -hmm. page to page. But talk about that first story and what it meant to you and why you used it to kind of frame the book. Yeah, I opened with it because it was so critical to my own understanding and learning. It's with a student who I call Marion in the book. But when I met her, she um, was at the time a, a single mom from the poorest neighborhood of Boston. She had a seven-year-old, I think, at the time, daughter who had chronic respiratory illness. Uh, Marion didn't have any social capital. There was no family. There was no support. She was by herself. She was struggling with a low-paying job, and she was trying to complete a degree. And when she came to our competency-based program that we did in partnership with Duet in Boston, I saw her transcripts, and they were. And she attended both the community colleges that are in the Boston area, and they're fine colleges. This is not a criticism of them, but her transcripts were littered with W's and F's, withdrawals and failures. And if you looked on paper, you would have concluded that Mary maybe wasn't ready for college or just wasn't a good fit, whatever. But it was not. It was not a story of success. And when I asked her about it, what she explained was that every time her little girl got sick and she would get again chronic, chronic respiratory illness, she would miss class maybe for a few days, maybe even for longer than a week. She would fall behind. She'd miss exams. She couldn't get caught up. And then if it was early enough in the term, she would take the W, the withdrawal. And if it was too late, she would have to take the F. When we put her in a program that was self-paced, that untethered from time, she actually flourished. She was really smart and she was hardworking. And she said to me, what she loved about the program was that anytime her her daughter had a flare-up, she could hit the pause button without penalty. She said, I'm the schedule. And what I came to realize in Marion's story is that there are inequities that are baked into our system throughout. And we can talk about some of those if you like. But a fundamental one is that when we, when we tether learning to time, we disadvantage low-income people for whom time is a, is a privilege that they don't have much of. Um, if you think about it, everything takes longer. Um, if you're low income, if you don't have a washer dryer in your apartment, it takes longer simply to have clean clothes. If you don't have a car, it takes longer to have you know, food in your refrigerator. And, and in Marion's case, she, she didn't have this control over time. And, and then think about people who are in retail jobs or fast food jobs, you know, part of the implication of the great resignation that's underway. They might not even know what their schedule is next week or the week after. But if we say you have to be in class every Monday, Wednesday, Friday at five o'clock, I don't know. Maybe it can. Maybe I can't. So that led me on this path to looking at the question of the credit hour and the inequities that are built into it, et cetera. There's an underlying tension in the book that I think grab a random 10 presidents and they're going to say students are at the center of everything we do. Um, But it feels like your book is saying that may well be in our hearts in the right place. But if there's a structural problem with the way we measure learning and give credit for learning, um, 
you're not going to be able to really put students in the center. Is it a structural uh, let me, flaw? Let me, let me give you one quick example of this. If, if we were to ask my colleagues, and, and, and by the way, with all the right intentions, nothing disingenuous, it's, it's rare that I meet someone working in higher ed who doesn't believe that they put students first. But then you sort of have to square that with the fact that for a community college graduate with an associate's degree transferring to a four-year college, on average, they're going to lose 43% of the credits that they earned in those first two years. So you can say you're students first. You can say you put students at the center of things. But if your transfer credit policies disadvantages low-income students who now have to pay more and take longer to complete their degree, are you really students first? <laughs> um, and if we as an industry are failing 45% of the students who start with us, creating a pool of 37 million Americans with some credits, no degree, and a record level of debt, are we really putting students first? So I think it's the, it's, I think, as you say, it's sort of in our hearts, but it's not always in our practice. You know, there's a long, long-standing view that higher education is, has always been thinking of students. There's, there's for those who have been interested in competency-based education for a long time. Um, there's sort of an underlying belief that competency-based education is great for some fields. You know, those that really sort of are vocational, whatever that means, which is an interesting yeah. question. Why we call this vocational? What are the other things? But do you believe that that CBE only really works well for certain disciplines? Or what about? sort of philosophy or, or art history? Can that be done the same way? feels like we've been asking this question for a long time. <laughs> I know, and I, I find it, it's such, a, it's such a tired question in some ways because I think, you know, use philosophy as an example. If I think about philosophy, there's a reason that McKinsey and other, uh, you know, consulting firms, elite firms um, recruit from the philosophy departments of great universities. Why is it? because philosophy graduates have some of the most coveted competencies in industry, right? They, they're critical thinkers. They understand logic models. They understand symbol systems. They understand language and communication. And, and, and McKinsey and Accenture and others, they, they will pay a lot for those competencies. And yet if you ask the philosophy department, it often wants to shy away from actually owning, embracing the claims it could make for its graduates. So yes, in, in certainly feels like, you know, technology, software engineering, it is perhaps easier to measure competency. And certainly we measure competency in all the places where our lives matter. You know, we if you think about airline pilots and nurses and doctors, we don't trust their transcripts from college or their GPAs. We make them do a whole lot of other things. But I would argue that the humanities, and that's my background, has actually made a poor case for itself historically. And we see it reflected in the national discourse, right? The, remember when Obama made a joke about art history majors? And, and he took it back, by the way, and apologized. But in reality, the humanities are actually teaching the hard stuff. We often call it soft skills. I would actually do the hard skills because they're fundamentally around culture and human beings and meaning making and symbol manipulation and all of these things that are very hard to teach and that are very, very valuable in the workforce. So students are in the center of, of your book, as I say, page to page. Um, the faculty are in, in your book as well. And I think, I think you're saying that um, higher education is not going to be able to transform the lives of the students you're talking about without a structural change in how we measure and conceive of learning um, broken from the old notion of time. I think there's also an underlying sense that um, we also need to reconsider pedagogy itself and how we teach and how, how subjects are taught. Is, is that true from your perspective? Yeah, I, that's right. And I think, so I'm very careful in the book to say that I'm not making an argument for any particular pedagogical approach. I think 
competency-based education is an architectural question, it is not a pedagogical question. When we talk about CB, which is so central to my argument, it's really asking two things. What are the claims you make for what students can do with what they know? So think about that's a performative question. What can they do with what they've learned from you? And then it's ask us, there's a second question, which is, how do you know? What is, how do you assess that? So now to go to your question, I think when we shift the focus from what students will know and we will presume or infer what they can do with it, that's kind of historically where we've been, we're shifting the spotlight over and we're saying, no, we actually want to make claims for what students can do and we'll infer or presume what they've had to learn along the way in order to do that. So it's a bit of a shifting in the weight, if you will. But if you do that, then as a faculty member, and I think about my pedagogy, it's going to steer me to things like project-based learning, hands-on learning, real-world learning. And that's going to, in turn, steer me to assessments that aren't about getting the right answer. Because getting the right answer isn't about performance, right? It's about, do I understand how to do something? Can I demonstrate my ability to do a thing? And, and that's really the rich ground of assessment. And it's honestly the place where we probably lag furthest behind. In other words, if you take a look at project-based learning, hands-on learning, workplace learning, we've really done a pretty good job moving the, moving the ball downfield in higher ed, right? And I think about a place like Worcester Polytech, WPI in Worcester, really wonderful engineering school, has a center for project-based learning that's nationally known. They're doing really good work in this front and lots of other places as well. But on the assessment side, we still rely too heavily on getting the right answer on exams. And we live in a world of ubiquitous information and search. Like getting the right answer is easy, but actually knowing how to do a thing, how to get to that answer, that's real learning. And we need to do a much better job on the assessment side. So as I said, if you think about the places where we really care that you know how to do a thing, um, I'll use airline pilots. It's great that you get a 4.0 from Emory Riddle, you know, really leading flight aviation program. But we still want you to take the FAA exams. We still want you to get a lot of time in the simulator. We still want you sitting in the right-hand seat in the cockpit under the watchful eye of an experienced pilot captain before we let you move to the left-hand seat. Um, and that's, what is that? That is, we need to see you doing the work. We need to see you putting the knowledge to work. We need to know that you, you can land a plane as well as everything else that goes into taking off and flying a plane. <laughs> it's all important. Given how much we both travel, this is not a rhetorical story. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> no, it is not. Uh, you know, you've been part of, of, I'll say, tectonic change in higher education for a long time. And you've, you've gone from sort of a skeptical discussion of competency-based education back when, and then everybody sort of continued being skeptical maybe, but then saw your university grow and grow and grow and become such an influential player. Um, Am I right, or does it seem, though, that the CBE conversation has gotten, has stalled a little bit? Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think in the book, I described this as really being a good example of the Gartner curve, right, which is we get this sort of rational exuberance, and that's when CB is going to change the world. Then it's like, oh, my God, CB just really, you know, sort of petered out. And then if you look closely, though, what you see is quietly this proliferation of CB programs that are going on across the country. And they're a little bit, there's less exuberance, there's less of the sort of grand claims that I was as guilty as anyone for making. And you see a leading institution like WGU, right? They're as large or larger than we are, 
170, 180,000 students. I mean, CBE is happening writ large, but it's also happening at lots of other places in more modest ways. I liken it to what we saw with the MOOCs. If you remember when MOOCs came out, we had the same exact irrational exuberance. They're going to change the whole world overnight. And I was like, oh God, MOOCs, weren't they a terrible disappointment? And where are they today? Well, edX just sold for $800 million to 2U. Coursera is worth a lot of money and it's actually expanding and having influence and it's now part of enterprise sales. So, do they look different? Sure. Are they an important part of the educational landscape? Increasingly so. And I would argue that that's what we're seeing with CBE as well. It will look different, but you know, next week is the big CBEN conference and I'll be speaking there and we will have educators and institutions from around the country come together to talk about the work they're doing on CBE. So I do think it's going to be critically important. The other thing that I think is going to drive with Ford is employer demand employers are no longer willing to put up with amorphous claims for graduates. They want to actually know that they're hiring people who can do the work they're supposed to be doing. And I was talking to, I think, the second or third largest healthcare system in the country recently. And even in nursing, this kind of example I use all the time as, no, they get it right. Like they're focusing on demonstrating what nurses can do. Even with nursing, they can't hire a freshly minted nursing graduate and put them to work on the floor. They have an internal academy that then takes those nursing graduates and has them, have them working for weeks with experienced nurses so they know for sure that they can do what they're supposed to be able to do. Employers are sometimes called the accreditors of the future, and I think they will have a big influence in moving us towards competency-based models. So the book is great in, in telling the story of higher education putting students at the center. It feels very, very much sort of both a defense of a career and of a university that has made its mark for competency-based education. And then there's the chapter uh, on the demonstration project that is, I'll call it the wonky chapter. Um, yeah, it's very much the wonky chapter. I apologize <laughs> at the beginning of it, I think. <laughs> so yes, wonky, but maybe in some ways to me, it felt like the center of the energy in a way of the book. And, and, it's, and it seems to be making a case for something new. To say a little bit about that. We're in an industry like healthcare that changes, frankly, pretty slowly because we're a highly regulated industry with a third party payer, in this case, mostly the federal government, $155 billion a year of federal financial aid. But in a regulated industry, we are unlike music or journalism, which you know, had disruptive innovation almost overnight and changed dramatically. Maybe that's a good thing. But if we are going to actually do the kinds of substantial changes for which I call uh, in the book, we're going to have to make safe spaces for that to happen. So Congress has this ability to create what are called demonstration projects. And a demonstration project says, we're going to take all the rules that get in your way, and we're going to allow you to waive some of them to, to sort of, we're going to waive those rules for you in a very controlled way so you can demonstrate that there's a better way to do the thing you want to do. And part of what's gotten in the way of really pushing us towards the next generation of CBE is that all of our rules for financial aid are still tethered to time. So we talk about things like satisfactory academic progress, term definition, credit hour definitions, time, time, time. And if we want to move away from that, we're going to need to have some, a different set of rules to play by. So what I call for is a demonstration project 
that would actually be based more around competencies and their completion and performance. And the reason why I think demonstration projects are powerful is, and I'll recall the example that I do in the book, is that there was once something called the 50% rule. And the 50% rule said that if you're completing a degree, at least 50% of it had to be on the physical location of the campus. In other words, no more than half of it could be online. And then there was a famous demonstration project that said, we're going to lift that cap. You can, you can do more than 50% online. You can do 100% online. And that was the first fully virtual degrees. And that demonstration project demonstrated that we could do fully online degrees with quality and rigor. And it opened the door for what is now common, right? Which is that online learning, there are large institutions like us, WGU, University of Maryland, Global Campus, and then lots of schools with maybe not fully online, but lots of online programs. That demonstration project unleashed all kinds of new innovations, and they served us well during the pandemic. I think a demonstration project around financial aid for CB could unleash the next generation of non-time-based programs. And I think what's powerful about that is it moves us away from thinking about learning as measured by time, how long someone sat with all this variability of actual learning and a lack of clarity about actual learning. It says, no, we're actually going to measure, we're going to actually measure learning and not time. And what I like about this is that if you think about the credit hour, time is fixed. You get a 15-week term. We may give you a we may give you an incompletion, John. You can go a little bit longer, but not a lot longer. Time is fixed, and your learning is variable, A, B, C, D, or F. And in our model that I argue for, it's actually the learning that gets fixed, and the time becomes variable. If you can demonstrate that you've mastered something more quickly, great, move on. If it takes you a year and a half to master the writing competency, well, it takes you a year and a half. But when you graduate, you'll know how to write. And I think there's more integrity in that model in the end, but it's also harder. It's harder work. It seems like the book is animated by the idea that that online sort of unleashed different thinking about uh, education, which made CBE possible as a model to go forward. Um, I mentioned uh, that I loved the, a series of articles you wrote for Educause Review, and I've probably quoted one of them uh, half a dozen times. It's where you say the role of technology, you say it allows us, technology allows you to do what you've been doing, but do it better. It allows you to do what we've been doing, but do it less expensively. But then the third part says, and it also allows you to reinvent what you do. In other words, to transform what we do. Is, is technology part of what it means to be students first in 2021? Yeah, completely. Because I think it does a lot of things. So one is that it allows us to free students from the constraints of geography. The idea that I have to be at a place. So if I'm working all day, I got a couple of kids, I'm racing home. If I have to race to campus, maybe eat a fast food lunch in the parking lot, a dinner in the parking lot, I may or may not see my kids before they're in bed, depending on what time my class gets out. If I can instead be untethered from that place, and in our world, our asynchronous classes untethered from a tight time schedule, now I can make learning happen in a ways that fit my life. That's incredibly powerful. That only happened when we could sort of move to online education. And then on another level, when I think about the secret sauce of what we do, it's actually quite human and relational. It's in the relationship of advisors to their students. I would say it's, say it's our secret sauce. But undergirding that relationship is a very powerful CRM where we're collecting data, we're monitoring student progress. We know when someone hasn't logged in, we know when someone has underperformed in a particular assignment. And that advisor is going to get a flag that says, hey, you need to reach out to John and see what's going on. And look at you might just say, hey, Paul, 
terrible week. Work was crazy. My kids were sick. Yeah, sorry. Like I blew it on that on that on that midterm, but I'll get it together. Like I, I'll figure this out. But if instead you say, you know what, I tried college a few years ago and I wasn't I wasn't college material and I'm struggling and I don't I don't think I can do this. Boy, that's a critical moment of intervention if I'm going to save you as a student. I think we have to realize that for so many of our students, it's not about their academic preparation. It's about the emotional, psychological baggage they carry. And, and, and oftentimes, they're this, this, you know, the sort of social capital is this thin. Um, and we have to be there for them. Or sometimes it's, hey, my, my old computer is not working very well and I couldn't get that assignment done. And we get to say, hey, can we send you? we send you a Chromebook? Like, I'm going to put something in the mail to you tonight so that you can have something that at least will get you through to the end of the term. Like, let's get you taken care of. Um, so, so those human, I think technology is so critical to what we do. It permeates what we do, but it's in service of very fundamental human interactions and relationships. Yeah. The story we both know far too well, that's probably far too more common is that student ends up withdrawing from all the courses probably getting sent to collections and now yep. now yep. they and have now has, started a college degree didn't finish it and have a bunch of debt that's right 37 million americans fall into that pool and i think you know i, rem- I recall being on the stage at educause some years back and i was i remember saying to to the audience that day that technology is so critical to what we do and too much of higher education thinks of it as a utility. It's so like, I just want things to work. I want my computer to work when I turn it on. I want that application to come up when I call it up. And if our leaders of our IT operations are not at the table and thinking about IT as a strategic enabler, as unlocking new ways of supporting students and new ways of putting students at the middle of things, then we're squandering an opportunity. So I think that either chief technology officer or chief digital officer in our parlance is really critical to thinking about how we reinvent the models to be much more student-centered and student-focused. So I think I've heard you describe the landscape of higher education using the I-word industry several times. Uh, Are you able to talk that way on your campus? It sort of depends on the audience. You know, I I think we as leaders have to always be mindful that we can get the same message across, but our language can get in the way of that message. So... For example, it's even I don't use the phrase customer service in my own organization, though I think a lot of what we do is good customer service, like making processes seem more seamless, taking the grit out of administrative processes is good customer service. You know, getting back to students quickly when they have a problem, I would argue that that's sort of good customer service. If I call it that, people will just, they'll get hung up on the term. So we can talk about instead student success. Like if I talk about this through student success, this is a student success imperative. It was like, yeah, we got to make sure that we're getting back to students when they're in their moment of need. So my language is really important. And I think sometimes I have learned that the hard way by not remembering and using language that sort of, you know, raise, raises the hackles. Um, marketing is something that no one likes to talk about in higher ed, and though we all market. I mean, what do you think D1 football on a Saturday afternoon is, if not marketing? But again, it's an uncomfortable conversation. And yeah, I talk about all of these things, but I have to talk about them in ways that are appreciative of the audience and, and how they need to understand. Part, part of what makes the difference in the journey after the trough of inflated expectations is how you move, how you shepherd the conversation and if whether you are able to bring people along or not. 
And you do it, as I say, with the stories of students throughout, which sort of grounds the reader in, uh, you know, when you get when you get on the cover of the book, Ted Mitchell, the head of ACE saying, if you read one book, read this book. I think it's because of the student voice that comes through so loud and clear and with authenticity. So so what you've talked about the one student who framed the book. What's your what's your other favorite student story? God, you know, it's it's hard. It's hard to pick. I mean, I think of. Uh, I think uh, I used uh, pseudonyms in there just to protect the identity of students, but it's sort of, you know, the student who was um, going to Rikers. And, and when our, you know, one of our staff members was in the courtroom and, and we said, well, look, we have this alternative. We can put him into this competency-based program, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this is, you know, spring of the year. And the judge says, well, what are we going to do between now and next September? Right. Very conventional notion of school year doesn't start till September. It's like, no, we start every month. Like you can start now. And the judge sort of sat back. It's like, there's a program that does that. Like in that very simple structural thing, we opened up an alternative for this young man who would have been sentenced to kind of a hellhole, um, which is Rikers. Um, so, I mean, there are stories. There's stories of uh, another guy who sort of comes to us as a refugee and, and you know, struggles, et cetera, but going to Harvard Business School out of our partnership program in Boston with Duet. And they're just these stories that are run throughout. And I think, you know, I was just um, yesterday going back and forth with uh, the woman who heads up our GEM program, which is, you know, Christina Russell, and you've been kind enough to be on the advisory board, John. It's the purest expression of our mission. And I don't, I mean, almost every one of those stories inspires me, and I share some of them in the book. And all of them are about listening to students' stories, I think, and understanding really understanding what students need from us and then building educational programs for them as opposed to making them conform to us. And I think fundamentally, when I go back to that first story of Miriam, Miriam wasn't failing because she wasn't right for college. We didn't have a model that was right for her, right? We weren't putting her at the middle of it. We were forcing her to experience higher ed in the ways that we like to structure it. And there are ways that make our life easier as institutions, but they don't necessarily work for students in the ways we need them to. And I think, I think that's really part of the learning I did in the journey of this book, um, in writing this book and, and sort of thinking through it. But it's led me to ask this question, and it's sort of the source of a book that I'm working on now for next year. It's on a contract, um, so I'm, looming, I'm aware of looming deadlines. But this question, how is it the systems that are meant to uplift people so often come to dehumanize them? And we see this all the time in healthcare. We see it in mental health, certainly. Criminal justice doesn't even pretend um, anymore. And unfortunately, we see it too often in K-12 and higher ed as well. So the next book is really looking at other industries to say, where are the examples of how people are rethinking and rehumanizing the systems? And almost all of them go back to listening. Like, don't shortchange time with the people you're trying to serve. You really have to spend the time. And I could give you tons of good examples from it, but it's a fun project. And I think it's the great lesson for us as well. We can't shortchange our time with students. Well, I was going to ask you, how in the world did you find time to write one book? Now you're telling me you're working on a second book of what... <laughs> Well, that's probably a testimony to the abject nature of my social life and the uh, and, and the fact that I was trapped in a pandemic and really couldn't travel the way that you and I are so used to. So so I had uh, I, I discovered a lot of time. And, I, you know, in the book that, uh, you know, Students First, the book we're discussing today, that's a book that's been with me for a long time and, and didn't have the space and opportunity to sit down and actually write. And the pandemic, for as awful as it was, and it was, 
It did allow me that. Okay, Paul, I'll let you get back to uh, everything else. It's great to see you, and I hope our paths cross in person one of these days. Absolutely, John. Thank you so much. Very nice meeting you. Take care.